Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It is now more likely than ever you will see the federal government make moves to put an end to a rail strike before it begins. It's going to be separate votes, and I don't know who this is going to make happy. There is a reality play. There's a political play. Um... There's a D.C. power play involved. A lot happening here. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. 833 got Tony. You work uh, in rail? The strike affecting you? I want to hear what you have to say. 833-468-8669. 833-GOT-TONY. Let's start with the basics. Follow what they call the business, as my father would say. Follow the bouncing ball which he said uh, since my most earliest memory of him when telling a story, follow the bouncing ball. There was a potential rail strike back in September, and that was averted. And it's very obvious that it was averted for political reasons, not because they really had a deal. But what they had come to was a level of agreement between the multiple unions that are involved in the world of rail and the uh, the actual uh, rail companies themselves. One of the big sticking points was the idea of time off. Of course, there were raises involved and everything else, and that seemed to be the easier to cover stuff. But the sick days was a real sticking point. The issue being that rail workers don't get sick days, like people in the restaurant industry. If you ever worked in restaurants, there are no sick days. If you can't work, you get someone to cover your shift. Don't, uh, no one wants to hear it. Show up. Rail workers, it was the same way. It is the same way. And they can't get this time off unless they find someone to cover their shift. And, of course, now you're getting those people overtime, and that creates a whole issue. And they wanted sick days, and they weren't getting sick days. And they're like, well, we're going on strike. So however you may feel about unions, uh, the the issue that they were bringing up is we don't have the time to live our lives if something should go wrong because we don't have anything baked into the deal. We need something baked into the deal. That was the sticking point. But they came to this level of resolution on, on, on a deal back in September, and it's very clear, very obvious that the whole purpose there was to move the deal from being a problem for the midterms. They simply didn't want the issue for the midterms. Now we are, here we are after the midterms, and you have a multiplicity of unions saying, we're not happy with this deal, we're not going to do it. We're not gonna be a part of this. And you still have like, I think it's four unions out of the dozen who are like, nope, and they all don't agree, they go on strike. So now you're hearing about Congress saying, well, if we can't help negotiate this deal or if the White House can't help negotiate this deal, the White House is going to go to Congress and say, you have to pass legislation that creates a framework around the original deal and you have to pass it and you have to force these people back to work. Oh, that's a wonderful move from this political progressive left. Force people into work with a deal they're not okay with. 
By the way, the deal provides rail workers a 24% wage increase during the five-year period 2020 through 2024, so it's a bit retroactive, including an immediate payout on average of $11,000 upon ratification. So this is what the White House is going to Congress with, and people like uh, Secretary Buttigieg, the Transportation Secretary, doing a bang-up job, by the way. Doing a bang-up job with those racist streets uh, there, Mayor Pete. You're, you're all over it. You're all on top of it. You got you to gotta be paying attention to those racist streets at all times. You're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. I guess we're both a little bit racist. Admitting it is not an easy thing to do. But I guess it's true. Between me and you, I think everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. More musicals than any other radio show in America. He can't figure out supply chain. He certainly can't figure out this deal. Pete Buttigieg is a guy in way over his head, and the press will still tell us how he's really the future of the Democratic Party. He wants Congress to act. And we should be clear, there are others on the political right saying, you got to do this. A rail strike will cost the United States $2 billion a day. Now, this is all supposed to come to a head on December 9th. But understand that if it's looming, these things happen much earlier. Because if you're somebody who sends things via rail, you're not going to send the thing because why would you have it stuck somewhere in transit if the rail workers aren't going to work? So right around this time is when people start saying, wait, am I going to put that on the train or not? You know what? I'm not. And this is when you start seeing the delays and you start seeing the lack of goods and the costs start going up. And that's how you get to the $2 billion a day number that it's going to cost the country. And there are people saying, look, you may not want this, but this this is where you are. This is what you're gonna have to do. Now, the country looks at this and says, you know what? This is the hard stuff. This is why we elected you. This is what you got to go handle. There was a tentative agreement back in September. You set that as the deal. The president signs it and you're done. This is you doing your job. And there's going to be a level of bipartisanship to it. In America, I think goes, well, look at that. They got it done. But now you got to take a look at what it is they're actually doing. The progressives are going to force people back to work. They're going to force them to take a deal they don't want and go back to work. You're a little bit racist. No, I, I don't think that applies. I don't think I don't think that that you can play that. You're a little bit racist. No, no, I said I said you just can't say that. I am saying that is difficult for the progressive party that's all about workers' rights to tell these rail unions, we're forcing you back to work with a deal that isn't perfect and isn't even going to give you your sick days because the rest of the country needs their goods and you can't keep them from them. Well, you're a little bit too No, you can't do that. No, 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 sorry, just not going to work. The progressives have come with a counter. They have said, look, we will vote on this legislation. We'll consider the legislation to adopt the tentative deal between the rail companies and the employees. But then there's going to be a second vote. The second vote 
is going to add seven days of paid sick leave to the agreement, which right now only provides for one day. I must say, as a bold strategy, you want Congress to add in sick days that weren't part of the original tentative deal that the railroad companies aren't actually offering up. And you want the Senate to go for that? I don't think they'll go for that. The House may may very well go for that. The progressives in the House could absolutely be seen going for that. But I am not so sure that you're going to be able to get Republicans in the Senate to go for this. Meanwhile, the head of the Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, Democrat out of Washington State, she's all over this subject. Well, I'm not happy in the sense that these rail companies have almost doubled their profits in the last decade. They have uh, cut their workforce almost in half in the last decade. They have given something like $142 billion in stock buybacks. Um, and dividends to their wealthiest shareholders. CEOs have increased their pay, and yet they don't want to pay a penny, what amounts to about a penny a day for seven sick days for workers. So I'm not happy about that. Um, And that is why we pushed as the Progressive Caucus very hard um, to make sure, and we worked hard with leadership, with Chairman DeFazio, with our progressive members, to get into the deal that we will vote on a paid sick days bill. Um, it's called an enrollment. We're doing it in a particular way, but it will be a, uh, a, an amendment, essentially, to add those seven sick days in. Because- it doesn't matter if they've cut the workforce in half. It's totally inconsequential. Maybe that's why profits are up. Also, profits are good. They're not bad, but there, once again, is the progressive letting you know how much they hate capitalism to begin with. If you were to argue that that Congress needs to pass this, I think you're going to win that argument. And if you're sitting on the bar stool discussing this out, you're going to force people back. Let's talk about Reagan and the air traffic controllers. This is not new. And one could successfully argue that this is the proper role of government. I I get it. I get it. it I'm not saying that there aren't going to be people who aren't bothered by it. But if we're talking about the best interests of the country, the goods have to keep going. You could take a look at everything that has happened with rail over over the years. There was the railroad strike in 1922. That was a two-month strike. You have uh, going back to uh, the, the, the Pullman strike. There's a lot of places you can go with this. But you may very well have to do it. And that you've got this 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 proposed deal that was put together in September, which clearly was meant to get you past the midterms. I will say that again repeatedly. You might have to actually do this. 
You can get America to buy into that, even when they're like, man, I don't like it. Because conceptually, I get it. You don't like it. How do you get America to buy into the idea that, oh, we're giving them seven sick days too? That's not part, wait, tell me if I'm wrong. That's not part of the original deal. They're adding it. And where in the world Where in the world does the Progressive Caucus think they have that right? As is noted, this deal that they want Congress to to vote on doesn't preclude the unions from further negotiating on that sick leave. And I would argue that they have an argument. I would argue that they have an argument. So I think that that is where it has to to be in the in the after of Congress uh, telling them this is the deal. Here you go. This is what you've got. That's all there is to it. This is what you've got. This is the deal. I don't see how the progressives can even begin to move this down the road. Now, here's the question. If the progressives can't do this and give them these extra sick days or even vote on them, right? See, I think the plan is just to vote on it, even though it won't go anywhere, to show that they care. Do the progressive caucus then show up to vote in favor of stopping the strike? Or do they stand with the unions and the strike commences? It's why they want to have the first vote before the second vote. And I am not sure as of yet if progressives will go along with that without certain levels of guarantees. This can get real ugly real quick. So that's the rail strike. The best I could put that together for you. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. The layoffs have begun at CNN. Well, maybe it's better said the layoffs are continuing Email going out today from CNN to my CNN colleagues. This from Chris Licht, the CEO. Our people are the heart and soul of this organization. It is incredibly hard to say goodbye to any one member of the CNN team, much less many. I recently described this process as a gut punch because I know that is how it feels for all of us. Today, we will notify a limited number of individuals, largely some of our paid contributors, as part of a recalibrated recording reporting strategy. Tomorrow, we will notify impacted employees. And tomorrow afternoon, I will follow up with more details on these changes. People are being shown the door at CNN. Now, who is it going to be? Who is it going to affect? This, I don't have an answer to. If, if we were to take uh, Chris Licht, the CEO, at his word, it is the contributors. It's a very interesting uh, thing to say because the whole world of contributors is is a unique one. Can you get paid for being a guest? People ask all the time, do I get paid when I do the, these cable news hits? And the answer is no. You don't get paid until you are a contributor, right? Uh, I, I am a, you can say, Fox News commentator or Newsmax commentator, or News Nation commentator, not a contributor. Contributor also comes with certain levels of rules to them, and you can't do the other networks. How many hours are you giving or 
hits are you giving a week to this to that the other and you're on call and right so it's 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 a little bit of a a golden handcuff if you will it's also an opportunity so when they're getting rid of contributors it's not that they're getting rid of guests it's that they're getting rid of people who they had put on the payroll probably for ideological purposes and they no longer feel the need to write a check to those people. Now, there are some who are going to freak out. How is CNN going to survive? Again, I just told you, there are still plenty of guests that they can have who can talk about these subjects. They just don't have to pay them as contributors. They aren't in the business of providing for people in an ideological manner. That shouldn't be their business, playing the part of the welfare state. The part two is the interesting thing, this idea of a recalibrated reporting strategy and how they're going to notify impacted employees. Well, what does that mean? How does that play out? Here's what I think it means. They are going to start having reductions in some producers and in some staffers because they're going to start having reductions in some shows. And they are not done retooling shows. If I am asked, Don Lemon is either going to be out or Don Lemon is going to end up in some weekend gig or some breaking anchor gig showing up on the network from time to time. This morning show that they put together was nothing more than a placeholder and is a disaster because Don Lemon can't do it and neither... He doesn't want to do it. Caitlin Collins can't do it. And that's really nothing against her. I mean, I I may find some of her reporting problematic, leftist, whatever the case may be. As a reporter, though, I can't, I don't necessarily complain about her. She isn't a host. It's a different skill set. So I believe that whole morning show is going to change. And then they'll fill in the gaps afterwards. They will run lean and mean with what they have and then figure out where to engage the fill later. That's what I think is coming. Don't know who's going to get fired today. Those names might not be known in terms of all of them until the end of the day. But Amazon gets rid of people. Facebook gets rid of people. CNN is not done. Maybe they looked at Twitter and they're like, wait, you can get rid of half your staff and still do the job? Cool. Hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we try that? Maybe, maybe. Meanwhile... You've got the Chinese and the Russians buzzing South Korea. I've got that story with Major Mike Lyons, retired, coming up. I'm Tony Katz. It seemed like the markets want to respond too well to that ADP report about jobs, where they say it's 127,000 jobs in November, but the estimate was 190,000. But then again, it's ADP, and they get it wrong Often, with all due respect, I'm not paying attention to that number. Wait for Friday. Wait for the actual jobs numbers to come out before anybody starts freaking out. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything. TonyKatz.locals.com. TonyKatz.locals.com. I have got my eyes, of course, on China. And you have uh, the, the riots, the protests going on within China over this COVID lockdown policy, the madness therein, and of course, the abusiveness of China writ large. But then you have this conversation about South Korea. It's a scramble of fighter jets right now.
in South Korea because you had both Chinese and Russian warplanes entering their air defense zone. First, China and Russia once again showing that they're working uh, together, or is this just coincidence? Is it coincidence or something else that this should be happening while there's massive upheaval in China because of the COVID lockdown policies? And why engaging a test of South Korea to begin with? Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, retired United States Army West Point man, M-A-J Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, M-A-J Mike Lyons, on the Twitter box, you take a look at what's happening here. First of all, what can you tell us about what's happened in this air defense identification zone? And is this uh, a move to engage militarily? Is this an exercise? Or is this to make you forget what's happening in China and the protests going on across the country? Well, good morning, Tony. I, I think of this as a flexing of their military muscle and in, in a coordination with the Russians more than I do anything internal happening in China. So let's, let's talk about what they did. They, they violated what's called an air defense identification zone, and that's a buffer that goes outside their territorial border plus the additional um, nautical border that each country has that's recognized by the United Nations. Let's say I think it's anywhere from 8 to 12 miles. And so, and what it does is it allows countries to tell other countries to say, look, if you get in this air defense zone, it means we're going to think that this is a potential threat because it allows air defense systems to, to engage a potential target that's coming. You, you wouldn't be able to do this if you wouldn't have this warning if, if these systems uh, were activated too late. And so that's what they did. And it's kind of Cold War tactics and what the Russians used to do to the United States back in the 80s. And they would take these kind of bombers and they would violate Alaskan airspace or, or Aleutian Islands or other places and they would just look for our response. And I think that's likely what this more or less is what's going on. And, and I think the story, though, is the fact that, that they scramble first two Chinese planes and they come back with Russian airplanes, both bombers and fighters. So this is a coordinated military effort between the Chinese and the Russians. I think that's the bigger story here. And I think, I think that's what uh, – I think they were trying to find out what the response time would be in South Korea. And, uh, and perhaps it's a precursor to something that they would do in Taiwan. Now – we it's it's always a conversation about uh, Taiwan, but the fact that this was done with the Russians, you know, I asked the conversation or I asked the question about the Chinese doing this as a way to uh, get people's eyes off of the incredible protests that are going on across the country, and I want to get into that with you. But now let's take a look at Russia. Embroiled in Ukraine, they haven't found a path to victory in Ukraine. All they can do is steal people, throw them into battle, allow them to get killed and steal more people to try uh, through just simple attrition to get Ukraine to fold. That hasn't happened uh, yet. Is Russia trying to get people to deflect from what's going on in Ukraine and still think of them as this big power? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a lot to do with us here. I'm sure this is getting reported on uh, Russian propaganda TV uh, at night and this, you know, working with the Chinese, um, making some story up about how U.S. Um, naval exercises in the region are forcing them to work with the Chinese on this. Uh, you know, Russia still, from a propaganda perspective, hasn't projected to its people that they are fundamentally a client state now of, of the Chinese, and, and you know, the Chinese dictate a lot of things that are going on there. So that'll get spun internally that way. And I think that, that has 
mostly what, what to do here. As the United States continues to conduct these naval exercises with South Korea, Australia, Japan, um, other forces there, because that's really our only deterrence right now uh, in that region is, is our Navy presence uh, should China to try to do something. But so, I, so Russia needs a win, and this is a win for Russia on their propaganda at night as, as their military continues to get absolutely flattened in Ukraine. And, and, and it's, it's a, a stalemate perspective, but from a, from a conventional forces perspective, they still are losing men and material every day. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. We talk about Taiwan, and we have been watching since uh, the disastrous uh, rollout or, or, or pullout of Afghanistan, wondering when China was going to make their move in Taiwan because they saw that the United States clearly under Joe Biden can't get these things done. And the pullout of Afghanistan showed the rest of the world that we're not serious about uh, keeping with our friends. And certainly we've seen uh, the massive level of, well, we're going to support Taiwan uh, militarily. Well, we haven't uh, opposed the one China policy. And that continued uh, back and forth that happens uh, amongst the State Department and others. Is there the thought that the invasion of Taiwan from China is going to come. It was Joe Biden who said it wasn't imminent, but now you need a definition of imminent. Does this signal to you, as you kind of alluded to, that the invasion of Taiwan is coming? Well, I, I can tell you the Pentagon is planning for that more um, expeditiously than anything that's happening in Europe and Ukraine right now. Uh, with the concern over that, depending on what kind of attack that would look like, and if you scenario this out, what that means, and if U.S. forces would be part of that attack, and that would start, you know, a, a global conflict at that level. But should China decide to go directly for Taiwan, um, what what would that look like? What would our response be? Again, we're not firing on China mainland. We're not doing that, and we're not going to fire the, protect the airspace is not going to we're not we're not going to do much and and the, what the president said was you know somebody irresponsible in, in in that uh because we won't be able to do anything there now again if the chinese decide to attack a an aircraft carrier and sink it like they've practiced doing we've seen in, in their drills like they're trying to do well then that's a different equation that that cranks up the war machine that cranks up uh, a whole you know different different perspective so i i i do think that again the pentagon is, is sober about this and clear-minded clear-eyed when they think that the threat is coming from china it's coming in the near term let's say four to six years and we've got to do what we can to increase the deterrence to keep them from doing that Let's bring it back to China just for a moment and the protests that are happening uh, there uh, over these COVID lockdowns. You know, when we talk about these protests, one of the hopes is, like you see in Iran, is that it could be enough of a destabilizing force to cause a change in, in the hierarchy. Now, in Iran, it's about toppling the Ayatollah, the mullahs, the hardliners, and the clerics, which seems to be a much easier thing to do than trying mm -hmm. to topple the Communist Party in China, right. though you you could, but it would. I think it would take a lot. Topple Xi Jinping, the president uh, for for life. These protests. How seriously mm -hmm. are they being taken? How much of a threat are we hearing that they are inside China to the Communist Party? And is there anybody getting a little antsy that maybe Xi Jinping doesn't get that third term? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think, unfortunately, what's being projected to us right now 
is this optimistic view of you know the human spirit and all those things that could go with that, and that defines America and American values. But um, this can turn into Tiananmen Square very quickly, and um, without recourse from the Chinese government. That's how they roll, and that's how it works. And I, that's my that would be my thing. We've got to be very careful about uh, as this is being put out there. There's many brave people right now in Iran, and many brave people in China that are protesting the government. But this is not a government. This neither one of those two play, and. Um, you know, they're kind of, you know, middle of the night, cut your throat type government in either side or, as we saw in Tiananmen Square, roll tanks and, you know, roll over things and blow things up. So I, I think we have to be careful and, and look at this and, and, and understand that uh, for an expectation perspective that um, the Chinese government is going to get their hands on this and they're, they're going to get this figured out. And it might not be in a way that the world is going to approve of. And that gets back to the fact that you know we're going to do deals with the Chinese, and we're still going to you know do what we have to do with them. But but the bottom line is they still have tremendous power, and their military, what they'll do to their citizens internally, is going to be unthinkable again. But but it's but it's likely going to happen. What's interesting is that sometimes we'll see this commentary, Major, from from Biden. I thought Biden gave a very weak response. Uh, to what's going on in China when I think you could put pressure on Xi Jinping and that's always a better position to be in and you could do it in this um, in this dip- diplomacy kind of way as opposed to, mm-hmm. let's say, a military kind of way. Right now, you've got the U.S. working a South China Sea uh, mission as the people at military.com are, are discussing it. The Navy's 7th mm-hmm. Fleet issued a rebuttal to China's objections to a mission taking place, calling it, quote, the latest in a long string of Chinese actions to misrepresent lawful U.S. maritime operations and assert its excessive and illegitimate maritime claims. It's right. fascinating to me because this is not the first time it's happened militarily, sir. This right. has been going on for a while under Biden. I should say this. It seems to me that the U.S. Navy has been a little more mouthy. I think that's the best way I could put it and, and, uh, and still yeah. do it with respect. It's, it's not that under Trump things didn't happen. It's that it's such an unbelievable contrast to where Biden is speaking to what the military is doing. And I'm a guy who likes to look at actions more than words. What's happening here? Yeah, they're just more emboldened. Um, I, I think they're just not con- they're concerned that there would not be a response. Um, but, but this is a natural progression based on what they did with the Spratleys and what's going on in the South China Sea and how they're, they've used this kind of lily pad um, methodology as expanding their territorial rights over areas to control a lot of those maritime shipping lanes and they they don't like the fact that the US Navy continues to project power there as it as it tries to just do nothing but keep those lanes open. I talk to sailors about what that job is like um and and they have to ensure that goods and services get moved through the Pacific and uh, the Chinese want to control that, maybe tax it. I'm I'm not sure what what their plans are. So I I do think that there's there's multiple other warning signals. We saw um we saw the Chinese now saying that they've got 1,500 nuclear weapons ready to go. And, and it's, I just scratch my head about that because if there's ever a nuclear exchange, I mean, God forbid, when you think about something like that, I mean, it's probably over after four or five of them. 
I mean, you know, when you think about the level of destruction, I mean, 1,500 nuclear rounds is just unfathomable. So, um, you know, especially trying to deliver them onto another country. I mean, you have no world left, you know, based on what, what they can do. So, so the Chinese are definitely more belligerent. And, um, and I think the Navy's got to respond in a way that, that, you know, equals and matches what, what they're doing, knowing full well that we're playing catch up on, on, and frankly, we're playing catch up on some of our naval assets, um, as we're down, you know, 295 ships versus Ronald Reagan, you know, when, when Ronald Reagan was president, you know, we had 600 ships in the Navy and the world was great, but, we're, we're getting back to gunboat diplomacies where navies project power, and I, and I think that uh, we're playing catch-up when it comes to that. There are, we have been discussing that here for years. That is absolutely the truth. It doesn't. You can talk drones. You can talk all other technologies. In the end, you need to have ships at, at sea. That yep. has not changed. Major Mike right. Lyons, retired United States Army, West Point. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. There's a lot more to get to. Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz today. Some people are putting out the story there that Sam Bankman-Fried was giving money to Republicans as well. This is the guy who ran FTX, that crypto platform, and it was taking people's money and putting it into another company he had called Alameda, making these very speculative investments, none of which worked out. People start realizing their money was going to be missing. They ran to FTX to get their dollars. He froze their accounts. Meanwhile, he was a massive donor to the Democratic Party. To the tune of millions, second largest donor to the Democratic Party. He's in the Bahamas, claiming he's down to his last $100,000. Like I give a you-know-what. Why hasn't he been arrested yet? That's the question. Tony Katz. That's me. Tony Katz today. 833-468-8669. He said on an interview, he's being interviewed. That, you see, he gave to Democrats, but he also gave to Republicans same amount of money, but he did his dark money because people freak out when you give to a Republican. I don't care that he said it. I want you to show me where it came from. I want you to show me how the money went from him to pick a senator, pick a congressman, pick a governor. Show me how it went to a Republican. Don't tell me he said it in an interview. I don't actually give a damn. I want you to show me. And until they show me, I'm not buying into that. Once you show me, all right, data is data, facts are facts. I I am not going to uh, deny this if you can show it to me. I wouldn't even say that it's out of the realm of possibility. Why wouldn't he have also given money to Republicans? Now, he was a uh, progressive poster child for crypto, and this was the guy who was going to help regulate crypto. And yes, there's a whole conversation about the money that went to Ukraine, and Ukraine was going to put their money into FTX, and then you were getting donations back to the Democratic Party, and that looked like money laundering. And I have no reason to believe it didn't happen exactly like that. And I have no reason to believe this interview he did with a crypto commentator by the name of Tiffany Fong on YouTube. None. I don't care that he said it. I want you to show it to me. You're going to say Citizens United allows this. Okay, Citizens United allows it. Now show us. So this is one of those... um, 
situations where everything is possible. But I'm not going to allow that narrative to be like, oh, he gave to Democrats too. Mm, or he gave to Republicans too. You show me. Show me. That's the question. Beto O'Rourke was trying to give back a million dollars to Sam Bankman Freed in the in the was it the week before the election? Seeing how everything was falling out, which makes you realize this guy gave a million dollars to a loser like Beto O'Rourke. No wonder he screwed over the whole company. A million dollars to Beto O'Rourke? Who who wastes their time like that? Who? Good Lord. The protests in China continue. And Disney? They're about to lose $100 million on a movie. And I don't think they care. This is Tony Katz today.